This episode contains descriptions of murder that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A young man shows signs of violence against women at a young age and is sent to a detention center. There, he charms an employee who does not realize how dangerous he will later become. This man will eventually murder four women in three different states, and that may not be the full extent of his victims. What was it about this man that was so charming that his victims never realized the depths of his depravity until it was too late? We'll also bring you an update to a case that took place on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 78, North Carolina Serial Killer Leslie Eugene Warren. He was incredibly young and he had the face to match, but underneath his youthful demeanor lay the heart of a killer. Women were inherently drawn to him and trusted him. Although two of Leslie Eugene Warren's crimes took place in my home state of North Carolina, including places I lived, I somehow had never heard of the man until the last few years. His case was the basis for an episode of the Investigation Discovery series titled Handsome Devils in 2014. You can view the episode, titled Baby-Faced Killer, through the Discovery Plus streaming service. Here's some backstory on Leslie Eugene Warren. He was born in Candler, North Carolina, and based on information that came out in his criminal trials, grew up in an abusive household. While in eighth grade, he broke into a cousin's home and was sent to the local juvenile evaluation center. A year later, counselors sent him to Broughton Hospital, a psychiatric facility in Morganton, because they feared he would attempt suicide. Leslie began to show signs of being troubled as a young child after his parents divorced. He spent 33 days enrolled at Inca High School in 1983 but he only attended 10 of those days before school officials withdrew him. While at Inca High School, a few weeks before his 16th birthday, he tied up a neighbor in her home and held her at gunpoint. A friend happened to stop by and was able to rescue the woman. This incident sent Leslie back to the juvenile evaluation center. He met a young woman named Jamie Hurley there. She had a psychology degree from UNC Asheville. According to her co-workers, she enjoyed her job and connecting with the teens there, including cooking holiday dinners for them. She thought Leslie was a bright young man, even if he was a loner. He liked to read, and they would discuss books. Jamie later left the job after experiencing burnout, but she stayed in touch with Leslie on a platonic basis. She even gave him her telephone number. He eventually earned his GED and enlisted in the United States Army when he was 18. He married a woman he had met in South Carolina and was stationed in Fort Drum, New York in 1987. Through a fellow soldier, he became acquainted with a 20-year-old young woman named Patsy Vineyard. 
Her husband reported her missing on May 21, 1987, after he returned home from being out of town and couldn't find her. Patsy's body was later found in Lake Ontario, near her home in Sackets Harbor, New York. She had been strangled to death. Leslie was one of 150 soldiers who were questioned in her disappearance, but he was not charged at the time of her death. Leslie was dishonorably discharged from the Army after receiving convictions for larceny and unauthorized absences, returning back to North Carolina and becoming a truck driver. The woman Leslie had met at the Juvenile Evaluation Center, Jamie Denise Hurley, was 39 years old when she went missing from her home in Asheville, North Carolina, on May 25, 1990. A friend of Jamie's knew Leslie had been at Jamie's home the day before she went missing and grew concerned when she couldn't reach her friend. Leslie had reached out to Jamie and said he needed her help, and she had invited him over. Investigators tracked down Leslie a few days later to question him about Jamie Hurley. He let them search his white van at the police department, and they found a purse belonging to Jamie inside. Leslie told police he thought he needed to retain a lawyer, and they talked amongst themselves and decided Jamie might still be alive. However, despite Leslie asking for an attorney, they continued questioning him. During the course of that interrogation, Leslie told police that Jamie had died from a cocaine overdose and he had put her body into the French Broad River. According to Jamie's friends and family, she was not known to use cocaine. The police arrested Leslie for failure to produce a title for a motor vehicle and misdemeanor larceny of Jamie Hurley's purse. The district attorney was not ready to file additional charges related to Jamie's disappearance at that point, so Leslie was released on a $25,000 secured bond. He returned to the police department on June 7, 1990, to try and get his van back. Investigators asked him to give blood, hair, and urine samples, which he agreed to. They asked if he could return the next day to tell them more about Jamie's alleged overdose, and he agreed to that. But instead, his mother and his lawyer's private investigator left messages for the police stating that his client would not be present without his attorney for any future interviews. Ted Lambert, who was then a detective with the Asheville Police Department, had been conducting informational interviews with people who knew Leslie from South Carolina. That's when he learned Leslie had been a suspect in yet another woman's murder. In August 1989, the body of 42-year-old Velma Faye Gray from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, was found by fishermen in Lake Bowen, not far from her home. Her hands were tied behind her back. She had died of asphyxiation. It appeared she had wrecked her car earlier that evening before she went missing. Velma was a singer in a band called Reflections and had been returning home from a gig in Asheville so she could help her son get ready for college. Her car was later found in a remote section of Greenville County. The left side of the vehicle had sustained damage. The passenger window was down, the gas tank lid was open, and the license tag was missing. Police initially arrested a young man for stealing Velma's car, a Mazda RX-7, and moving it to a secondary location after finding it abandoned. They later determined Velma was already gone from the scene when the car was stolen. In an article that ran in the Greenville News on December 15, 1989, 
The Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office announced Velma's family was offering a reward of $3,000 for anyone who knew of a truck driver that was at the scene when Velma wrecked her car off the White Horse Road extension. Witnesses said they saw a tractor-trailer parked near Velma's car early on August 27th. Police wondered if someone had stopped to offer the woman help. They wanted to see if this truck driver had any additional information. They later questioned Leslie Eugene Warren when they learned he was a truck driver who might have been in the area, and he said he had not stopped that night in South Carolina. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the classes tab. Hey, true crime fans, I'm Amanda. And I'm her mom, Pam. And we are inviting you to listen to our podcast, Enmeshed. We dive deep to give you fresh takes on stale relationships. Join us every Monday for an audio journey covering the darker side of family dynamics. Our episodes are around 30 minutes. We get right into it. We will guide you through intriguing lesser-known cases and famous crime stories involving murder, deceit, and the entangled family members who commit these crimes together or against each other. Check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. In July of 1990, after being questioned in Jamie Hurley's disappearance and while out on bond, Leslie traveled to High Point, North Carolina. According to a news article that ran later that month, a young woman named Terry Quinby, who worked part-time as a bartender at a local hotel, met Leslie and took him as her guest to a company picnic. She introduced him to a co-worker, Katherine Johnson, a 21-year-old college student at the University of North Carolina, and the two hit it off. The group went to a local Applebee's after the picnic, and Leslie bragged to Terry's brother that he planned to make a move on Katherine later that evening. He and Catherine later left the restaurant so he could give the young woman a ride on his motorcycle. Around 11.30 p.m., Leslie returned to pick up Catherine's car. Catherine was not with him, and he told Terry that she was at a local motel where they would be spending the night. The next day, he returned alone to Terry Quinby's house and asked her if he could stay there while he looked for a new place. He said Catherine had returned to Chapel Hill. Leslie proceeded to spend the entire week at Terry's house before he was arrested for Jamie Hurley's disappearance. When he was arrested, he had a set of keys on him that belonged to Katherine Johnson. After he was detained by the officers with the Asheville Police Department, he confessed to being responsible for the murder of Katherine Johnson. 
He revealed the two had been intimate on the night they met and that he had strangled her with her bra and left her body in the trunk of her car in the Radisson Hotel parking deck. Catherine's family had been out of town and didn't even know the young woman was missing when investigators discovered her body. Police from the Asheville Police Department traveled to High Point as they realized how dangerous Leslie Eugene Warren was. They eventually captured him at Terry Quinby's home in High Point and questioned him about Jamie. Leslie came clean and said he had strangled Jamie Hurley and buried her in a shallow grave off Highway 151 in western Buncombe County. Leslie was eventually tied to the deaths of Patsy Vineyard from New York and Velma Gray from South Carolina. After Leslie was arrested in High Point, Terry Quinby told local media outlets that, what freaks me out is that I could have been next. I mean, they say he knew all those girls too. It's so hard to believe. He was so normal. It's hard to know why Leslie committed these murders. Most of the time his victims were women he knew personally, except for Velma Gray, which seemed to be a crime of opportunity. But why did he murder some women and remain in relationships with others? What was his thought process? At the time of his arrest, Leslie Eugene Warren had a wife he was separated from and a child in South Carolina. He was not tried for Patsy Vineyard's murder. He received a life sentence for killing Velma Gray from South Carolina and was sentenced to death in North Carolina for the murders of Jamie Hurley and Katherine Johnson. Leslie Eugene Warren is currently on death row. He is suspected of murdering other women as well. I found an article in the August 3, 1990 edition of the Charlotte Observer that said South Carolina authorities questioned Leslie about the death of 42-year-old Daisy Snyder, who was found near the Oconee Power Plant in 1988. She had been sexually assaulted and died from a shotgun wound to the chest. However, that crime was later linked by DNA to a man named Mark Neal Golden, who was an inmate at a state correctional facility in Pennsylvania. A few years ago, I shared a short video about Leslie on the YouTube channel for Missing in the Carolinas. It generated several comments from people who knew him personally. A man who said he was Leslie's cousin shared that Leslie had lived with their family briefly for a time. His father had bought Leslie a blue Volkswagen Beetle that Leslie ruined because he failed to put oil in it. The cousin said Leslie loved reading books by Stephen King and discussing them. He was also lazy and did not like to work. Another man said the video was painful to watch because Patsy Vineyard had been his sister-in-law. The woman Leslie had been dating in Asheville when he murdered Jamie Hurley and Katherine Johnson also commented on the video to say she had testified against him in court. And another man commented who said he had met Leslie once because his mother had dated him. Next, I want to talk about a case that recently came across my news feed. It took place on the Outer Banks in Kitty Hawk, and the case was resolved in court this past fall. On July 22, 2020, a man named John J. Tolson called 911 and said he'd found a friend unconscious in her bathtub at her Kitty Hawk home and needed help. The friend was 38-year-old Amanda Leanne Fletcher Hartleben. First responders found the woman unconscious and in medical distress. She was airlifted to a Norfolk, Virginia hospital, where she died three days later. From the start, Leanne's family was suspicious. She had met Jay only a few months earlier, and they became romantically involved. He needed a place to stay, and since her two children were away at the time, she let him move into her home. 
According to an article that ran in People magazine, Jade quickly became possessive and Leanne was unhappy and uncomfortable with the way things were progressing. She asked him to move out before the incident occurred in her home. Based on reports I read, the home was not secured as a crime scene after Leanne was taken to the hospital. Her family members said police told them there was no proof a crime had been committed and they wanted to wait and see what the results of Leanne's autopsy were. That took two months. The cause of death was ruled as complications of blunt force trauma to the head with hepatic cirrhosis and clinical hepatic failure. She had no alcohol or drugs in her system. She also had bruises to her forearms and backs of her hands that did not seem consistent with the fall in the bathtub. Leanne's family said there was no blood in the bathtub either. Rather, an investigator they hired found signs of blood spatter on the walls of the home and a pillowcase and comforter on the bed. They believed Leanne had been injured on July 20th, and Jay Tolson waited two days before calling 911. During that time, he searched his phone for how bad are concussions and what if someone won't wake up from a concussion. He also phoned an ex-girlfriend asking for advice on what to do if Leanne had a head injury and wouldn't wake up. When she told him to contact 911, that's when he finally made the call for help. Once Leanne was taken to the hospital, Jay never once called to check on her condition. After the results of the autopsy were released, 32-year-old Jay Tolson was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. But in September of this year, prosecutors worked out a plea deal with Jay Tolson with the cooperation of Leanne's family, guilty to voluntary manslaughter in the Dare County Superior Court. The second-degree murder charge was then dropped. The judge noted that Jay had no significant criminal history prior to the case and sentenced him to up to six years, eight months in prison. He was credited for time served awaiting trial. He'd been in custody for nearly three years at that point. He was also ordered to not have any contact with Leanne Hartleben's family and also to be provided with the opportunity to receive counseling and treatment for substance abuse dependencies. At his sentencing, Jay Tolson said, I pray for peace and closure in Jesus' name. Before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to share that I recently posted the following in the Facebook group, You Know You're From Asheville If, but I also wanted to share it here. I'm a journalist and podcaster working on a project about the still unsolved murder of UNC Asheville student Virginia Ginger Olson from 1973. If anyone in this group knew her or was at the university when this crime occurred, I'm interested in speaking with you. I'm also a graduate of both North Buncombe High School and UNC Asheville. If you or anyone you know might be interested in this, please share with them or message me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. 
Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.